John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, He saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on Him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the Word of God for the people of God. For the next six weeks, our assigned scripture lessons for the sermon are from the Gospels of Mark and John. But they begin to tell us all about Jesus. And I'm going to be asking you to follow along as we begin to learn and refresh our memories about how God has called Jesus and led Him into this ministry. Our task, if we choose to accept it, is to listen to Jesus to follow along, to be here each of those six weeks and listen closely to what Jesus is saying and doing. We'll be asking, what is He saying? What does He teach? What is God saying to us through these gospel stories? I'm going to be inviting you to listen for the good news As it comes, proclaim by Jesus, who we claim as Christ, Messiah, Lord, and Savior. Now, we run into a problem pretty quickly, though, with this whole idea of listening to Jesus, because He doesn't actually speak in the text we just read today. John the Baptist is the one. But in what John says, he's preparing us to listen even more effectively, to be better listeners in terms of what Jesus is going to say so that we might integrate it more effectively into our own lives. John says, as Mark tells the story in verse 7, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Then he goes on in verse 8 to say, I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I want us to think about the meaning of baptism, particularly water baptism, for a moment. Now you may remember that Mark has already told us the baptism that John is proclaiming, back up in verse 4, says that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So if we're going to understand water baptism, it's important for us to remember the meaning of repentance. Now you may remember that our word repent or repentance comes from 
a Greek word, metanoia. Meta, meaning change, and noia, coming from the Greek word nos, which means mind. So metanoia, or repentance, suggests we need a change of mind or a change of perspective. Sometimes it even suggests a change in direction in terms of how we're living. What we find is from the very earliest vestiges of Christianity, this notion that God wants to do more in the world, that there is a need for a change in the status quo, that God is not done with us yet, that God's continuing to work in the world, and God intends more for you and me and for the world than we have experienced thus far. Our faith proclaims that God through Christ is offering us a better way, a better life. Now the assumption all through the gospel stories is that the problem for humans is we too easily get focused and consumed by worldly concerns. We get so focused on physical well-being that we miss the spiritual And John the Baptist is saying, wait a minute, repent, change from that. Look at the spiritual, focus on the spiritual. John is saying the change that all of us are invited to make is to continually refocus our minds or our attention toward God. John the Baptist is saying, focus on God, make sure At the core of your living is a focus on God. I've read a lot of stories this last week on how to start the new year right. You probably got some of those either in the paper or in your email. They all talk about reviewing last year and seeing how we did and thinking about where we did well and where we fell short. And then reordering things. Usually they suggest we set some goals. And the best ones say, not only set some goals, not only have ideas about where you want to go, but write them down so that you can keep them before you. But not only write the goal down, write some steps, some action steps that you can take to move you toward that goal. And I think all of that is great advice. But you know what the problem is for Christians is that every one of those articles I read, and maybe the ones you read as well, Have you focus on yourself, which is okay as far as psychology goes. But for Christians, we're constantly reminded, and John the Baptist is reminding us this morning, that we're to focus first on God. That God is to be at the center of who we are and what we do. So I've put some questions in your outline to help you think about that. Rather than just thinking about what do I want, how about this? What does God want for me this year? Where is God leading me this year? Or in a slightly different frame, where does God, what does God want to do through me this year? What the gospel suggests is rather than seeing ourselves as separated from God, is to see ourselves connected to God and realizing we are at our best when God is in the center or at the core of who we are and what we're doing. But John the Baptist goes even further than that. 
He suggests that when we shift our focus to God, what we experience is forgiveness. Not punishment or shame or guilt, but forgiveness. And John the Baptist and the Gospels are saying that this forgiveness opens up a new future. It opens the door for you to a fresh new start. God's grace is being offered to you and opening the door for you so that God's love can come in and lead you into the future so that you might experience the more that God intends for each and every one of us to know in terms of abundant life. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, talked and wrote quite a bit about this under the guise of God's grace coming to us. And when he's talking about God's grace being offered to us as a free gift, he does talk about forgiveness or what he calls most often justification. That is what God does for us. Which what God does for us is to relieve us of sin and guilt. But Wesley says there's more in the good news than just that. There's also a second movement of God's grace that Wesley calls sanctification, or what God does in us. The power of God working in us to transform us. We heard a piece of that in verse 8 when John was proclaiming and preparing us for Christ. He says, I have baptized you with water, but He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What John is talking about is this power of God that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit that's at work in you and in the world. But particularly in terms of working in you is to transform you evermore into the image of Christ. When Wesley talks about salvation or sanctification... He's describing the power of God filling our hearts and minds with divine love so that all we say and do is fueled by, is motivated by love of God and love of neighbor. This is such an important point to grasp and integrate into our lives. God is not only wanting to bring you to Christ, But God is wanting to transform you into the same image as Christ. And the gospel promises this can happen via the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. So often, Christians kind of truncate what God wants to do and focus just on that first part of bringing someone to Christ But when they focus only on that, they missed all the rest of what God wants to do in you and in the world in terms of sanctification or bringing you to wholeness or fullness in terms of experiencing the love of God and sharing that with others. This whole idea of God continuing to work within us in love that Wesley calls sanctification became so very important when he was writing about it. He says this, The grand deposit which God has lodged with the people called Methodist, and for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. 
Wesley's saying this whole idea of sanctification, of God's ongoing work in our lives, was the main reason there's even a Methodist movement or a Methodist church was to make sure we carried this banner of God loving you, not only when you come to faith, but continuing to love you and work in your life to change you, to transform you evermore into the image of Christ. Wesley believed this doctrine of what he called sanctification, sometimes entire sanctification, or being made whole in love, was Methodism's most essential teaching for Christians. So John Wesley and John the Baptist are saying a similar thing. God is not done with you yet. God still has and intends more for you in your life. When I begin to think about the Holy Spirit and how God is with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the words that we read so often at funerals always echo in my mind. They come from the 14th chapter of John. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is verse 25, 26, and 27. Jesus says to them, I have said these things to you while I'm still with you. But the advocate, or some translations say counselor or comforter or helper, this one says advocate, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Now those are words of great comfort when we come to the point of saying goodbye to someone who has died. But they're not only words of comfort. They're words of peace for us. They're words of power. They're the promise of God's power coming through the Holy Spirit, being present to you, available to you, working within you and around you continually. Jesus is saying there's a power beyond yourself, and there's a power beyond what the world can give you in terms of peace and joy and abundant life, and it's the power of God working in your life through the Holy Spirit. It is power, peace, and direction available to you today. Paul talks about this when he's writing the early Christians in Galatia. You remember he talks about what a life lived in the power of the Spirit looks like. And then he lists these nine characteristics that you can see in a person's life if they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember those? He says you'll see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and humility and self-control. Those would be the marks or the characteristics of a life empowered by the Spirit. Now most of us can identify for friends or other family members Some of those areas they need to work at. But if we spend a little time, we can easily identify some of those characteristics that Paul offers 
as areas where we still need some Holy Spirit help. But that's the promise, is that you don't do this by yourself, that this is the power of God available to you to transform you and change you if you'll but open your heart and mind and life and allow God to come in and do God's work. I'm reading a book called A Guide to Prayer for All Who Seek God. It quotes different great religious thinkers week to week. This week, one of them was Marjorie Thompson. She's one of our great Methodist leaders. She's writing about this life of sanctification or wholeness and love. She says it beautifully, I think. She writes, God created us for a purpose more astonishing and sublime than we can imagine. Every great Christian theologian and saint has borne witness to this high purpose. The human being is created in the divine image and likeness in order to have continual and intimate communion with the one who made us. We are created to love and be loved by God, born to serve and be served by Christ, destined to enjoy the vitality of the Holy Spirit and in turn receive God's delight in us forever. Such is God's good pleasure and our highest bliss. Mark begins his gospel with this story of Jesus and John the Baptist so this divine revelation can come to us and tell us so clearly we can trust God for a better future. We can trust God to lead us into a better future. The better future is to be a follower of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Mark says this is not just for you, but this is for the whole world. God intends more for the whole world. God wants a better life for all people around the globe. In biblical language, it's called the kingdom of God. When all people are living their lives in line with God's will. When all people have opened themselves to this transforming love of God. And now they are changed evermore into the image of Christ. In a couple of weeks, we'll still be in the first chapter of Mark, and we're going to hear Jesus say something very similar to John. Repent, Jesus says, for the kingdom of God has come near. Believe this good news. Believe it. Believe that God is available to you today, and God wants good to happen in your life. As I was reading over this text this week preparing, I kept thinking about the song we sing when we light the candles on the big Advent wreath every Sunday in December in Bishop's Hall. That closing song is so inspirational. We begin to sing about how many weeks till he arrives, and we change it each week as we grow closer to Christmas Day. But then after we sing this many more weeks till he arrives, you remember the lyrics? Singing about Jesus, we say, He who's filled and changed our lives. 
Then we sing, let the bells ring loud and clear. Let the children shout and cheer. Let all kinds of drums be heard. It's echoing this idea that this is a celebration, that there should be great joy when we recognize that God's love has been born into the world and is available even for us. And then the last line, we sing, let all people get the word. Let all people get the word. This is a gospel proclamation for each and every one of us. But it does not stop here. It goes into all the world. For God is at work in the life of every child of His. In a few moments, we're going to move on into the communion liturgy. And rather than saying an affirmation of faith to start off, I've placed there John Wesley's covenant prayer. It's a prayer that he loved to use at this time of year to help people rededicate, to recommit their lives and turn their whole lives over to God, opening themselves to this Holy Spirit power of love to transform them, to change and fill their lives. I'm going to suggest that not only do you read it with us in a moment, but that you keep your bulletin this week And read this prayer every morning this week. Maybe even read it a second time right after you take communion or while you're waiting your turn for communion this morning. Because it is a prayer that Wesley used and adapted to help people focus on God and to give themselves fully to God so that they might fully know the love of God at work in their lives. And when we do that, what we find is truly our lives will be characterized by those fruits of the Spirit. We'll know in this new year love and joy and peace and a power beyond our understanding. I pray that it might be so for each of us. Amen.